This is Betsy Jensen, and you are listening to Unstoppable Body and Mind, episode 124, 10 Myths About Pain. In this podcast, we learn to upgrade our brain and understand the power of our thoughts to heal and to create the results we want in our life. Become the person in control of your healing and make peace with your life. Become unstoppable, body and mind. Hello, my loves. This episode is a compilation of the 10 biggest myths or misnomers that people have about pain and especially about chronic pain. I definitely knew very little about chronic pain, even though I worked with people in pain for over two decades. I was trained as a physical therapist, and my understanding from being trained over 20 years ago was that pain means something is broken in the body, some damage. And as you'll see with these myths, we really know a lot more about pain now and how it behaves as well as what causes chronic pain and what the best way is to treat it. So the first myth that I believed for many, many years was that pain was a sign of tissue damage. Pain means that there's something wrong or being injured or the alignment is bad and pain is this indicator from the body that something is broken or not how it should be. But what we actually know is that pain is created in the brain and very real pain can occur in the body without there being any signs of tissue damage. We also know now that they've been doing MRIs on pain-free people, that some of the things we thought were contributors to pain actually occur in pain-free people. So things like herniated discs and spinal stenosis and arthritis and disc degeneration these things are actually found very commonly in pain-free people. So there are normal abnormalities when we age, and not all of these things actually cause pain, especially if it's been more than three to six months, because that is the normal healing time. There are a couple of really interesting cases that show this. One was a man who was a construction worker who jumped down and a nail went through his boot. He was in so much excruciating pain, they had to sedate him to cut off his boot, and they were surprised to find that the nail actually went between the toes and there was no damage to his tissues at all, not even a scratch but he had very real pain. His brain perceived that danger of the nail going through his boot and created pain for him to stop what he was doing and go get medical attention. Another example of how the brain can create pain is a placebo car crash study that they did where people were simulated to have been in a car crash but their necks actually didn't move. They weren't really hit, they didn't have a car crash, but people believed that they did. And so there's no way that they got damage to their neck muscles, but 20% of the people developed whiplash symptoms. Four weeks later, 10% of the people still had whiplash neck pain, even though there was no way their neck muscles were injured. What they found is those people had the most stress and emotional distress in their lives at the time of that study. So we know that when people are stressed, they're more likely to create pain based on the situation that they believe is happening, even though this experiment shows there's no way they actually had whiplash because they never had a car accident. 
I really believe that pain from tissue injury is the minority of the pain that we feel. There are estimates that 80 to 90% of chronic pain actually are caused by this neuroplastic component, meaning the source of the pain is not because of an injury or tissue damage that hasn't healed, but by these learned habits of the brain through neuroplasticity and being amplified by fear. So all pain is actually created in the brain and our brain just does its best job that it can interpreting the signals from the body and the environment. So if we get a cut on our finger, it's not our finger that's actually hurting. The receptors send information to our brain and spinal cord, and our brain is what produces the pain that we feel in our finger. The brain can produce all kinds of symptoms in the body, not just pain. It could be gassiness and bloating from IBS. It could be tinnitus or dizziness. It could be fatigue from the state of freeze. So if your pain has lasted longer than three to six months, it's resistant to medical treatment, or you're the kind of person that has one area of pain and then another, and you also have a history of being an anxious person, then chances are your pain is this neuroplastic pain. And even if they can look with a microscope or in most cases an MRI or x-ray and see damage, it doesn't even mean that that is the cause of your pain. They've actually found that a doctor could not predict how much pain someone is going to be in just by looking at their x-ray of how much arthritis they have. So this is a newer area of research and they haven't studied everything, but they have found things like rotator cuff tears, meniscus tears, Morton's neuroma, all of these things can occur in pain-free people. It doesn't cause them chronic pain. I even found one study that studied young, healthy athletes. So they're young, they're pain-free, and they're athletic. And they found that 89% of them had a hip labral tear, yet they were feeling no pain and it did not affect their athletic function. So pain does not equal tissue damage, and especially in cases of chronic pain, it's even less likely that that's what's going on. Myth number two, if I have pain or symptoms after exercise or a food, it means that exercise or a food is what caused my pain. This is something we implicitly believe. Our brain likes to find patterns and just like our brain might start believing if we wore a certain pair of colored socks when we scored a bunch of goals, that those are our lucky socks and that that will help us score goals in the future, our brain will often make mistakes and correlate two things, but it doesn't actually mean one thing caused the other. So for me, with this work, learning about neuroplastic pain, I started to realize that when I'm stressed and my nervous system is dysregulated, my digestion shuts off. That's what happens when we're in these survival states. Our digestion is less important than surviving. So when I was having pains or even symptoms, I would start to recognize them as signs of stress rather than blaming the food that I ate and then restricting that food from my diet. Through this process of brain rewiring, people are able to start eating the foods they enjoy again and not have fear about foods causing their symptoms. I knew, for example, for me, 
that my reaction to coffee was neuroplastic. I had made a correlation that coffee was hurting my stomach and I thought it was maybe the acidity of it. So I tried different things like acid reducers. And then one day I was in a training with Dr. Schubiner and he was talking about this predictive coding. And in my mind, I just started thinking about a cup of coffee and my stomach started to tighten up and hurt. So I knew in that moment that I had this predictive response where even just thinking about that food or drink caused my body to produce that reaction. And this is also very commonly seen with exercise or movement. In the past, if my back started to hurt, I would think, what was I just doing? Or what did I do within the last day or two that could have caused it? Maybe it was that yoga class I took a day ago, or maybe it was how I slept because I woke up that way. But what you'll learn about with neuroplastic pain is that our brain and body can produce patterns of tightness that have nothing to do with the activity. We might have developed fear of certain movements and predictions that certain movements will cause pain. For example, if long ago I did injure my back when I was bending over, then in the future that bending over motion could continue to cause pain long after that injury has healed because my brain is now in this protective state about me bending forward. And it may even start to hurt before I bend as far forward. And then it starts to hurt with other activities that don't even involve bending forward. So you can question all of this, even when pain is occurring with a certain movement. Like I started to have some pain in the last joint of my middle finger once. And so every time I moved it, I noticed that there was this pain and I thought, oh, maybe it is like arthritis or some calcification or gout. And I noticed that the pain wasn't always there. So that's a sign that it is most likely neuroplastic. Sometimes I'd bend my finger and it would hurt and other days it wouldn't. And then one day my finger was bugging me and I also was having some jaw pain that had started on one side and went to the other. And I thought, I am just gonna journal. And I did this rage on the page exercise. I did this free writing about all the things that I was mad about or had emotions about or felt sad about. And a lot of stuff came out that I wasn't really realizing was a big deal to me. And my that pain in my finger totally went away as well as the pain in my jaw. So pain with or after movement does not even mean that it was the movement that caused that pain. Myth number three, the longer I've had pain means the longer it will take to heal. Now this can be true to some degree. The longer you've had some neural pathways that have been wiring and firing together, the stronger those neural pathways become and the longer it can take to rewire them. But it's also possible for people to change their beliefs, have a new insight, change the way they're relating to themselves or the pressure they're putting on themselves and their pain can quickly go away. This is not to say that if your pain doesn't quickly go away that you're doing it wrong or this won't work for you. Patience is very important with this process so you don't have to rush things but also know that you don't necessarily have to give yourself several years or decades of healing if you've been in pain for several years or decades. 
Myth number four, I will have to relive traumatic experiences in order to heal from them. Once you learn about the role the nervous system plays in pain development, then you may start to think, oh, I have a lot of stuff to uncover. I have a lot of traumas to go over and I'll have to go back year by year of my life and address all the traumas and go back through them in order to heal. And it doesn't really work that way. Most of the time with my clients, I don't have to actually go through and have them relive any of their experiences of abuse or trauma from their childhood. They just need to understand what happened and the survival states that their nervous system started to go into because of what was going on. Then when they can identify those survival states going on now, they can rewire their brain from this present moment, teaching their nervous system that they're safe now. And that is like unwinding one string from a big clumped up ball of string that you can pull out and unwind and rewire. So we don't have to go back through searching for old experiences to try to find the traumas and relive them we can use how the body is reacting now, the survival states that it's presenting with now and rewire or neutralize those traumatic responses from years and years before. Number five, if I don't have significant childhood trauma, then I shouldn't have chronic pain. You may have heard of the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, it's a study they did over several decades showing that when people have traumatic events, adverse childhood experiences in their youth, that they are more likely to have health problems, especially autoimmune conditions and things like chronic pain when they're adults. But it doesn't mean that everyone who presents with neuroplastic pain has gone through significant childhood traumas. It could be that you had some traumas as an adult, or it could even be that you didn't have capital T traumas, but you had many little T traumas. For me, for example, I had a great loving family, supportive parents who were there for me. My ACEs score is so low, but I developed some of the personality traits that people with chronic pain have, perfectionism, people-pleasing, wanting to be good, having a strong sense of duty, feeling like I needed to be busy all the time, extremely self-critical. I believe that environment I grew up in did play a part because I was raised in a very religious culture where most of the time I felt like I was not good enough. But again, I didn't really have any of those big T traumas like abuse or neglect or witnessing violence in the home. There was none of that. And many people that I've talked to feel the same way. Their childhoods were relatively uneventful, but maybe they moved once when they were a child or they got bullied by someone in school. That is enough to put that nervous system on high alert and cause neuroplastic pain later in life. Myth number six, if my pain is mind-body, I need to have 100% belief before I can heal. Many people have been told many confusing things about their pain, and they might be new to this mind-body approach. They are just learning about neuroplastic pain, and maybe some of it resonates, 
And they're not exactly sure that that's what's going on. Maybe they deep down still have a belief that something structural is going on and their doctor just hasn't found it yet. But they may have some evidence that they have at least some component of neuroplastic pain. And as they start to learn techniques to calm their nervous system, ways to react with less fear, and the personality traits that they can identify and change, they can start to decrease their neuroplastic pain even without that 100% belief. In fact, it's kind of rare that someone hears about this approach and believes 100% that this is them, that nothing structural is involved and it's 100% neuroplastic. Most people start with the belief that it's probably some of both. And then as they do this work, they can realize actually it was all neuroplastic and there's no actual need for these chronic pain conditions and they can become chronic pain free. But even if you start with just a little bit of belief and then keep looking for evidence that your pain is behaving in more of a neuroplastic way, you can build that evidence you need as you go along and you might just surprise yourself at how much your pain can change when you view it differently. For example, one of the hallmark signs of neuroplastic pain is that it comes and goes. And I did have one client that had pain that would come and go over different places of his back, but in one place in his back, he said the pain was constant. It was always there. After a couple months of doing this work, he actually noticed he was very distracted, doing some projects, and realized that pain in that part of his back was actually not there during that time he was distracted. And this is pain that he had believed was structural and was constant. So just doing some of this work, calming his fear for the other areas of pain helped him decrease pain in this area as well. Myth number seven, I have to be perfect at healing. Perfectionism is actually one of the personality traits that keeps chronic pain going. So many people who show up to this work with chronic pain have this perfectionistic attitude about healing, which actually slows down their healing progress. There's no one through five that you can just check all the boxes and do perfectly and know that that is exactly how you're going to heal. It's different for different people. And usually having a urgent, perfectionistic, overdoing kind of approach causes the process to take longer. For me, it was definitely a process of learning to do less and to rest more and to do more self-care and play than it was for me to take a bunch of actions like journaling and meditating and doing it a prescribed amount of time each day. In fact, it's not even the activity itself that causes healing or not. It's the emotion, the nervous system state that we're doing those activities from. For example, I might find that a restful, distracting activity that I like is watching a TV show, letting myself just veg out and relax and consider that some self-care. But someone else may watch a TV show and in the back of their mind, they're thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. I have so much to do. Why am I just sitting here? I should be doing something else. I feel really lazy. This is dumb. So they're not going to have the same calming effect from watching TV as someone who believes that it's soothing and fine 
and a treat for them. Someone may believe that journaling is helpful to decrease their pain. And so they're journaling with a lot of intensity and urgency and forcing themselves to do it twice a day and thinking the longer they do it, the better. But because they're coming from this state of urgency, they're actually still in the survival state of flight, trying to do more so that they can feel safe. So it's not as much what we're doing or not doing, but it's the state of the nervous system that we're in and the emotions that we're having that will determine what result we have. The main way to decrease neuroplastic pain is to decrease our fear and to be in the rest and repair state. So there's no such thing as being perfect at healing because there's no perfect checklist that's a one size fits all for what people need to do to heal. Myth number eight, if I have neuroplastic pain, it means that I'm weak. Some people are more likely to be sensitive and to express symptoms through their bodies, but everyone has mind-body conditions to some degree. You may be very nervous to speak in front of people and your stomach gets upset. People have even thrown up from feeling so nervous. That's just a normal physical way the body displays the emotions that are going on at the conscious or subconscious level. Blushing is another example that you may have something even subconsciously that triggers you to feel embarrassment. And then you have this change in your body that your face gets red and your cheeks get warm. Your mind and body are always working together and having symptoms in your body just means that your nervous system got triggered. People with more sensitive nervous systems could be more easily triggered, but it doesn't mean they're weak. If anything, their mind-body connection is strong. We just want to calm the nervous system, regulate it more and more so that not everything is perceived as dangerous. People who use this process can actually find that their sensitivity can be their superpower. When you start to know what's going on with your body and the cues it's giving you, you have this extra sensory perception that people around you may not have. Thinking of yourself as weak or broken or fragile only increases the chance that you will have these mind-body symptoms. And especially when you react with frustration, many people think, why me? I can look at other people who must have stressors in their life and they're not having these symptoms. But that kind of thinking only slows down your healing process. Chances are other people are struggling with things that we don't have any idea about. So comparing your level of sensitivity to someone else's is really not helpful and probably not accurate. Even after I resolved my chronic conditions, I've continued with coaching and I found myself saying something very similar with my ex. Our relationship has not been great even after divorce. And I found myself saying, why me? Why do I have to have an ex-husband is so unpleasant to deal with and keeps having these problems with me. And that's when I realized I sound so much like so many of my clients that are saying, why me? Why do I have to deal with this? I believe that we are on this earth to learn certain lessons in our lifetime. And the lessons that you'll learn through this mind-body approach can help you in all aspects of your life with connection with other people, with showing up as your biggest and brightest self, not being scared to go out and evolve. Pain just might be your entry point to learning about your fear responses and how to overcome them. 
and you have the opportunity to let your sensitivity become your superpower. Myth number nine, if I've been doing the work and I still have pain, it means there are repressed emotions that I haven't yet found. This can be a tricky one. People start doing this work, start uncovering beliefs and emotions and changing them, but there's still pain. So then they get a little more urgent, frantically starting to examine and think and become perfectionistic and dig and try and find that missing piece that they think is somewhere in their past. And since we don't know what emotions we're repressing, their subconscious, people might think there's some kind of subconscious emotion I just haven't found yet. I have to keep looking. But we know that chronic pain is not just from repressed emotions. It could be from the pain-fear cycle. So if you have a lot of fear and anxiety, that can perpetuate your pain. So the way that you're responding to your pain could be what's keeping the pain going. And if you're catastrophizing about your pain, that could increase your brain's production of pain. Catastrophizing is saying things like, it'll never go away. And no matter what I do, it doesn't help. And I'm scared that I'll have this forever. And I'm scared it won't go away. Anytime you're catastrophizing, that's like turning the volume knob up on your pain. So it may not be repressed emotions causing your pain, but the way you're talking about your pain day to day and focusing on it. Another example of pain that has nothing to do with repressed emotions is predictive coding. That's like what I said when bending over was painful. And so months or years later, the brain still produces pain when bending over because of this predictive coding. Your brain may have picked up a pattern of pain occurring in the morning or pain occurring with your period. And so as, since it's happened several times, then in the future, your brain just creates what it expects to have. It predicts and creates that pain in the morning or with your period. You can have predictive coding with foods. I ate broccoli once during a stressful time and had a lot of stomach pains. And then my brain associated that pain with the broccoli. So for years, I was unable to eat raw broccoli without it causing pain. And I'm happy to report that just this last month, for the first time I had raw broccoli that did not have that reaction for me. And it's because I had decreased my fear around that food and then my brain did not produce that reaction I had previously expected it to have. There are definitely some times that people have not addressed their repressed emotions and that can be putting their nervous system on a high alert and causing chronic pain. So that can be one of the reasons pain continues, but it's definitely not the only reason. And often that searching for what is that missing emotion and that memory that I can't even remember tends to cause more anxiety and then more pain. And then myth number 10 is that the goal is to be totally regulated and pain-free. So we do use the term chronic pain-free. So I no longer have chronic pain. I don't have chronic IBS symptoms, but I am still a human. So when I'm growing and evolving and facing things that trigger my nervous system, I may still have some symptoms here and there. In fact, we want to have symptoms, right? We want to know if we put our hand on a hot stove that we'll have that, those sensors to tell us to pull our hand away. 
And if we're starting to get into some people pleasing and not having boundaries, we might have some symptoms in our body that are telling us and reminding us that we're falling back into those old unhelpful patterns. We want our body to give us feedback. Then our body can become a barometer of what's going on in the environment and how we're reacting to it. But to think that at some point we'll never have symptoms again and never have any pain and never feel dysregulated is a thought that can actually keep people in pain. Because then when we do have any kind of symptoms, we might think we've done it wrong and we're back to square one and nothing's working. When in fact, it's just a sign that something's bumped up against our stuff. Something's triggered us. It's actually a sign that we're evolving and growing if we have some triggers and responses in our bodies. I described that pain in my middle finger joint and some jaw pain. I've even had facial pain and numbness, hip pain all over the last couple months, but I was able to assess what was going on in my life, what was stressful, change those things or reframe the ways I was thinking about them so they were less stressful to me. And the pain went away within minutes or hours or at the most a couple of days. So as long as you're human and alive and growing, there are chances that you will have some symptoms in your body, some pain, and it's not a sign that you're doing it wrong it's actually a sign of growth. So I hope this helped you understand a little bit more about pain and specifically neuroplastic pain, because once we understand what is really going on with pain production in our bodies, then we can treat it in a way that provides healing to our body and mind. Check out more information on my website, bodyandmindlifecoach.com. Thanks guys. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a little bit about your brain today that helps you in your life like it helped me. Please be sure and subscribe and leave a review. And of course, be sure and share this podcast with someone you know that wants an unstoppable body and mind.